Welcome to the first episode of this new podcast from the Society for the Study of Addiction. This is going to be a monthly podcast summarising the latest news and research and working out the implications for policy research and most importantly of all for those of you who deliver treatment. Over the next 40 or so minutes, we will bring you insights into the life of a specialist addictions nurse, the latest news, the latest research. We have a feature on commissioning, which includes an interview with Professor Alison Ritter and Dr. Will Haydock. We also have a preview of the PhD podcast from Chloe Burke on research and addiction during COVID. Before all of that, however, I would like to welcome our first guest, uh, Oliver Standing from Collective Voice. Oliver, welcome to the SSA podcast. Thanks, Rob. Um, so, Oliver, uh, you work at Collective Voice. Can you tell us a little bit about your role there and about the work of Collective Voice? Absolutely. Yeah, um, I'm director of, of Collective Voice, which is a charity, and we are the National Alliance of Drug and Alcohol Treatment and Recovery Charities. So my members are some of those big voluntary sector providers that are delivering support up and down the country. And Collective Voice itself, we came into being about six years ago um, because those provider charities got together and thought that with um, Drugscope, the charity no longer existing, and with the National Treatment Agency, the, the national kind of policy leadership voice at that time no longer existing, there really needed to be uh, an interface, if you like, between the treatment and recovery field and the political system. So Collective Voice exists to be that interface on the voluntary sector side and basically to advocate for evidence-based person-centered treatment and recovery and the funding and policy frameworks that are needed for that to flourish. So is it challenging uh, for you um, working in an organization that, that, that brings together other organizations that, that are otherwise um, in competition with each other? Well, it, it can be at times, but I think that that issue is part and parcel of any alliance work, really. So um, when you build coalitions of organizations, you have to accept that sometimes their takes on the world will be a bit different. Sometimes their interests will, will diverge. And it's all about being smart in finding the spaces where their interests converge. Um, and of course, although the current paradigm of, of tendering and commissioning is very competitive that might not last forever as we're going to see later in the in the program i think so it was really about the the kind of mental work on um defining collective voices mission and purpose and then everything else flowed from there uh, we we often i often uh, speak to people who um who talk about the the lack of a voice uh, in the sector. If you look back 15, 20 years ago, there were a lot of organisations that were advocating uh, in a policy settings for, for issues related to addiction. And, and there are m many fewer now. So uh, all the more important that organisations such as Collective Voice exist. Um, and a particularly interesting time um, to do so with the Professor Dame Carol Black report uh, just out, which we'll be talking about in a bit. So now joining us, uh, now joining us for the news section of this podcast is Dr. Carol Angetti from Addiction News. Uh, Carol, thank you for joining us. Uh, which news stories have you picked out uh, from the from the past month? Hi, Rob. Uh, thank you. So, of course, always interesting things happening over at the uh, the Addiction Newsroom. But the first one I wanted to share is a story that's come out uh, from Sweden. And uh, unfortunately, the Swedish government has been left with a rather hefty bill uh, at the hands of a mistake. So in 2019, a Swedish prosecutor charged three men for activities related to the illicit drug market. 
and the Swedish government seized 36 Bitcoin that the men had earned through their illegal online drug sales. And at the time, the prosecutor actually converted the value of the cryptocurrency to Swedish krona, meaning that the government was only legally entitled to seize the cash value of the Bitcoin at the time, which worked out to be roughly 127,000 euro. But after the men were sent to prison, it fell to Sweden's state uh, enforcement authority to auction off the proceeds of the drug crime. Uh, that, that process took just over two years to complete. Uh, and within that time, the value of the 36 Bitcoin skyrocketed, as you could imagine, uh, to almost 1.5 million euro. So now the Swedish government have to return what equals to 1.3 million euro worth of Bitcoin to the convicted drug dealers. It, uh, it it just it makes it makes my stomach sink slightly as if as if I was there when someone discovered that that was the error that they made and it also at the same time makes me feel a lot better about any errors I made this week at work. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, it's a very interesting story. I was very uh, keen to write that one up and share it with everyone. Developments with that one. Absolutely, um, Oliver. What new stories have uh, have run past you recently? Well, it's, it's it's really an ongoing policy development news story, I suppose, Rob, which is. Dame Carol Black's independent review of drugs. Um, so this was commissioned four or so years ago now by Sajid Javid when he was Home Secretary, and it came in, in two parts. The first part focused on the problems posed by illicit drugs, I suppose, and the second part focusing very much on some of the solutions to those problems. And it's very heavily focused on treatment and recovery, which is which is great. And um, it's just an impressive robust well thought out piece of work really it's it's very very comprehensive and dame carol has a sort of 360 degree conception of addiction so the report was published in the summer and the government's offered an initial response soon after but there wasn't that much in that response um the big thing everyone's been focused on has been will there be money made available to bring the ambitions of the review to life? And all attention was on the, the spending review process a couple of weeks back. Um, the announcement made on the 27th of, of November. I was on leave. I was coming back with my family from Hastings, but I was had my mobile phone out hitting F5 on it, so to speak. Um, and there wasn't anything in there. So I think some people took that very negatively to... to um, to constitute a sort of a door banging shut in our face but actually I'm a bit more hopeful than that because the government has pledged to publish a drug strategy this side of Christmas so it might be coming out in in around a month's time and uh, I think that would be a really great opportunity for the government to set out its stall with an ambitious strategy which responds to the Black Review and makes available um, a robust settlement over a number of years because that's a big part of the challenge we've had one year funding and it's actually quite hard to absorb that meaningfully so it needs to be for a number of years um, to set out its stall on on how it will um, how it will do that and what its strategic vision is of uh, reducing the harms presented by uh, by drug use so I'm, I'm 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 fairly hopeful but we will know about that just in the next few weeks really Absolutely. And, and these these things really, really do matter to how addiction treatment is delivered. I mean, I think I got my first job in a drug treatment agency when 
um, they were recruiting, I mean, thankfully for me, almost anyone because they had the money to do so. This was when um, when Tony Blair, the tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime was happening. And then obviously going through drug strategies afterwards um, and like post uh, 2010 um, and then the Lansley reforms and austerity. These strategies and, and what they outline and the funding that's associated them have a massive impact on that part where you deliver treatment and you deliver interventions and you support people. So a really important moment to watch out for. So the news story that I picked out was around the medicines, uh, medicines and healthcare products regulation agency in the UK have um, announced that vaping products will be available on prescription, um, which has uh, opened a big debate about how and which vaping products will be um, registered as a medicinal product. And I think it's it's a really, really fascinating area, um, particularly in England, uh, which is seen as kind of having a slightly more pro-vaping stance than many other countries. Um, and you have, yeah, so you have in this country, it being viewed as a prescription tool to help people stop smoking. Um, and just in the same month, you have uh, Singapore, which has recently seized a million pounds worth of vaping products because they're illegal there. So they're seizing it as you know, as contraband, as illicit drugs uh, going into their um, into their country at the same time as, as England is, is working out how to prescribe it. There's an enormous debate going on here about which companies can uh, afford the regulation process and whether big tobacco is involved or not. Um, and it's a fascinating area, uh, particularly when you're looking at regulation of products um, and about how how substances come onto you know commercial markets and then regulated markets and then uh, medicinal markets. It's, it's a fascinating case study and worth worth keeping on top of. Um, okay, so there's a, a quick run through the news there. As ever, go to Addiction News on the Addiction Journal website for um, a constant update of news from around the world um, in relation to addiction. Uh, however, now we're going to cut to a short interview with Peter Kelly about his work as a specialist addiction nurse. My name is Peter Kelly and I used to work as a drug, drug and alcohol nurse practitioner in um, community prescribing services in London. A typical day is probably to say that there's actually no such thing as a really typical day in that line of work. But in terms of the overall role, um, you know, it's reflective of, you know, what a mental health nurse does, which is very much dependent on interpersonal models. Um, I'm drawing on lots of different areas, psychology, sociology, etc. So that's that's kind of the model we work off. Um, but principally, my role involves being a case manager for uh, maybe 30, between 30 and 50 service users, depending on their complexity. Most of those service users would be maintained on opiate substitution therapy. They would have complex needs, so high incidence of mental health issues, lots of physical health issues such as bloodborne viruses, and some of them homeless. So typical day, perhaps we might do some assessments in the morning to admit some new service users to the, to the clinic. Um, it may be that we would titrate the person and, and sometimes get them on uh, a prescription in the same day. Typically, however, it would take a couple of days to get somebody uh, titrated and stabilisation can take a little bit longer than that. It's important to mention um, liaison with lots of other services is important. So your job involves liaison with multitude of agencies such as child protection, uh, possibly the courts, homelessness agencies, if somebody wants to get into detox, 
um, you know, you're you're working the serve with the service user to accomplish those goals or to get them into rehab. So case management in that respect um, is a really important part of the job. Um, best parts of the job are, I think, dealing with dealing with the service users. I would class myself as a people person, um, and as you develop relationships with the people that you case manage, um, and you know potentially help them to improve their health in a small way or sometimes in a in a much more significant way, um, the rewards come from um, from that aspect of the job. I think. The admin is probably my least. I, I, I think um, the admin side of the job, things like completing prescriptions. Um, sometimes you have a very large stack of prescriptions to complete. Um, I would say entering data on the computers um, and realize that's important. Measuring what you do is important, but sometimes that uh, took precedence over the, act- the doing of the actual job itself. The Royal College of Nursing um, has lots of information about nursing. If you're specifically interested in addiction nursing, there is a Public Health England document um, published by one of our colleagues, Carmel Clancy and Mike Flanagan, which talks about the role of the nurse in addictions. Uh, thank you, Peter. I, I think it's probably worth at this point uh, noting that he passed his Viva recently. Uh, so congratulations, uh, Peter. Uh, any, any thoughts on on uh, on that interview, uh, Oliver? Well, the, yeah, it was it was really uh, interesting to hear from him. Actually, the the main sort of takeaway message I, I took from it, I suppose, is the the sheer breadth of um, some of the roles that exist in. The frontline bits of our system. So, uh, you know, Peter's Peter's a nurse, of course, but there's a whole host of people called drug and alcohol workers, recovery coordinators, recovery navigators, substance use workers, lo- lots of different titles, but essentially people who are working um, on the front line to support those with drug and alcohol problems. And they're being asked, I think, to do three different things. You know, firstly, be key workers, be case workers. So that's the sort of the meta intervention which sits across everything they do. It's the glue that holds everything together. Secondly, to deliver specific interventions. So they need to be skilled in delivering motivational interviewing or whatever else they're doing. Uh, But thirdly, to be system navigators effectively because substance use problems are not just health problems, not just criminal justice problems, not just housing problems, they're they're everything problems. So they have to be expert in navigating all those allied systems with their crunchy interfaces, uh, dealing with different groups of people who are using different sets of of language and different concepts and and different funding streams and different kind of political uh, worlds that they inhabit. So doing all of that as well, it's just really, really skilled. And I think we sometimes don't... um, don't recognize quite what we ask of people on the front line so my hope is with the black review um, and some of its recommendations there could be a greater recognition of the importance and skill of some of these frontline roles absolutely i was i was i was taken as ever with his uh, his comment on being a people person and enjoying working with the people um and um i, I think you know as well as all those structures that, that we have to look at to make uh, to deliver addiction treatment in an effective way you you need people who can talk to people um and it's such a such a core skill and such a and what can be a very very complex skill 
um, and but that often gets overlooked when we're looking at um, you know at policy at national interventions at strategies and things like that um, okay so now if we move on to the latest research so we've all picked out uh, some research that has taken our eye I'm just going to go through quickly through a couple of um, areas in the journal so the latest issue of addiction at the time of uh, at the time of recording which is volume 116 issue 12 there's a, a big section in the introduction there in the debate around accreditation of smartphone apps for addiction so this is a fascinating area whereby you know we've all got smartphone apps to help us do goodness knows what much better and there is an emerging uh, market for ones that help people uh, with addiction um, to address that and so there's a big debate about how these get regulated, how they get registered, what an evidence base means and where they get stored. And there's a, there's a really interesting series of articles um, that explore that issue in greater depth. Um, there's also a special issue in drugs, education, prevention and policy. That's volume 28, issue five. And that's on the mechanisms and mediators of addiction recovery. Lots of qualitative uh, research there about what recovery means to people. Um, I, encourage you to look at both special issues. Um, on a more individual basis, there's um, an article by Meinhofer about illegal drug market responses to state recreational cannabis laws. So that looks at in states where cannabis has been legalized, it would appear that um, uh, the price and purity of heroin has increased, which indicates kind of complex markets and complex interplay between uh, policy and results. Um, uh, a slightly sobering article about increased illicit substance use among Zimbabwean adolescents and youths during COVID, um, an impending public health disaster. Um, and some. Uh, the one that particularly caught my eye actually was about recovery and identity. This is by uh, Von Grief. Um, and this was recovery and identity, a five-year follow-up of persons treated in 12-step programs. And so this was about people's identity. So some people identifying strongly with uh, recovery um, and, uh, you know, being um, inverted quotes, uh, addict. Other people needing to, to leave that kind of identity behind and, and uh, kind of um, move on from that. Other people who talk about struggling with leaving the identity of being a criminal and actually that leaving them with very little sense of identity. Um, and again, other people who didn't. So as well as some, some fascinating insights into the interplay between recovery and, and identity, there's also the vast differences between those people and their experiences. So they were the ones that, uh, that, that caught my eye. Uh, Carol, what, did, um, uh, what caught your eye recently? So I picked out a paper that uh, I came across recently by Professor Kelly in addiction where they address the concerns over the provision of naloxone. So they highlight in this paper that the overdose crisis has resulted in numerous policies designed to reduce adverse outcomes from substance use and the provision and access to naloxone is one such measure. And while the expansion of naloxone uh, access beyond medical personnel has offered a sense of relief and optimism, it has been met with many concerns. So some argue that by making naloxone more readily available, the perceived risk of opioid use is reduced and therefore it might actually uh, promote drug use. So these researchers here, they wanted to empirically explore the legitimacy of this concern. So using data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, the Prescription Drug Abuse uh, Policy System and the US Consensus to determine if naloxone access laws decreased the perceived risk of any heroin use. And they find that in all instances, uh, there was no evidence of decreased risk perceptions. 
So of course this work is super important and, and encouraging. And naloxone is of course a life-saving drug and these findings show that by expanding access to this heroin overdose reversal drug, it doesn't actually contribute to perceived uh, reduced risk, uh, which might then negatively impact upon uh, an increase in opioid use. It- uh, in in several ways, it's shocking that we still need to have this conversation. But but certainly that take home message: if you give people naloxone, it does not make them less care, more careless towards overdose. It doesn't make people think, oh well, it doesn't matter now because I've got naloxone. And I think that's a really key finding uh, for people who are concerned about um, and interested in delivering naloxone. Um, uh, thank you, Carol. Uh, uh, Oliver. Thanks, Rob. Um, I picked out a paper by Harry Sumnall, Amanda Atkinson, Suzanne Gage, Ian Hamilton and Catherine Montgomery, uh, which is looking at stigma and dehumanisation of people who use drugs and, and particularly people who use heroin. And I think it's an interesting and important paper because it's it's not just making the case that people who use drugs and particularly people who use heroin are stigmatized because we kind of already know that and there's some pretty good um, evidence on it but it's asking the question so what it's asking the question what does that stigma lead to and how is that stigma manifest in society and in individuals um and again it's, it's quite a sort of sober and, and sad read really um e- even for me who who like all of you probably have worked in the field for for over a decade um it finds that Stigma dehumanizes people in the eyes of um, other other human beings to the extent that they're seen as not fully human, not fully able to process um, the sort of normal range of human emotions and have the normal range of life experiences. It characterizes them bodily as zombie-like, other transgressive, because particularly because of injecting practices. And that means that people who do use use drugs are less likely to ask for help. It means that when people do ask for help, the quality of the help they get may be affected by that stigma um, as well. So it's particularly bad for heroin. And it asks the question, of course, what what can we do about it? And they, they point to it partly in the paper, but I think really it's about positive stories of of recovery, positive stories of of compassion and humanity to demonstrate that people who use drugs are just that, they're people, Um, and certainly a policy of of person-first language, not talking about heroin addicts or repeat offenders. Actually, policymaking should focus on the person first and then the the, the life challenge um, second. And there was something about myth-busting not being particularly effective. Yeah, this, we, we chatted about that earlier, didn't we? Um, I think sometimes when when there are myths that are held at a societal level, people understandably want to make the case on rationalistic grounds that they should uh, right those wrongs and explain carefully using evidence why these myths are, are myths and not truths. But I think there's, you know, there's, there's evidence now to indicate that it, it just doesn't work because human beings aren't uh, rational decision makers. We like stories and images and we go a lot on gut instinct. So there's no point spelling out in, in detail why these things aren't true because the myths, the stigma just is reinforced in people's heads. So you have to go on the positive side and show stories of 
positive change for human beings and what that has brought people in terms of the goods of life. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, thank you both. We'll post links to these articles on the page where you're listening to this podcast. Um, now we have a, a feature on commissioning. Now, this is uh, this is between two interviews, two recent interviews, one with Professor Alison Ritter and one with Dr. Will Haydock about recommissioning. Anyone working in addiction treatment services in the past 20 years will have become used to recommissioning. What used to be an event is now referred to as a cycle, a reference to the three or five year commissioning processes that, seemingly by default, go round and round and start again. In recent times, during austerity, each cycle has meant reduced money, further compounding the challenges facing treatment providers. All of this raises the question of why we need to recommission services in the first place. Professor Alison Ritter has conducted some research in Australia where there is a similar system of recommissioning. Her research is on the impact of market forces on drug and alcohol treatment provision. Competitive tendering is of course regarded as the most efficient uh, mechanism to purchase services when you have a, a, mark, a competitive marketplace. And of course this model works very well for a variety of goods and services. My own view is that it works very poorly when we're talking about healthcare and in particular when we're talking about healthcare to a, a very marginalised population. And there's quite a lot of qualitative research that shows um, that mechanisms like competitive tendering and, and short contracts are problematic for alcohol and drug treatment. I recently also spoke to Dr Will Haydock, who has worked as a commissioner for 10 years in Dorset in England, about some of the reasons why services are recommissioned. Say you set up a service and you put a time frame on that. That might have been because the funding associated with this service was only guaranteed for X number of years. You'd then be prompted to go, OK, well, we're going to have to look at what we have in the future. As we've seen over the past 10 years, say, in the sector, if there's a dramatic cut in the funding available you might have a conversation as a commissioner with the provider and say, look, we're actually going to have to change this contract quite substantially. Maybe you've noticed that the outcomes from the system aren't great. Maybe there's been uh, a change in what you think is needed locally. A lot of that can be addressed within current contracts, I would say, most of the time. But sometimes there will be times where you're trying to make a bigger change and that does actually need a formal contract change, maybe. Or it might be that the provider says, actually, what you're looking to do now isn't quite our thing. Or you might have the view, you're just not happy with, with how it's going with that provider. And so you're going to effectively go out and ask if there's anyone else who could do a better job. Professor Ritter's research compared treatment outcomes for services that were commissioned using market forces with those that were not. I asked her what the research team found. So we did not find a relationship between these market mechanisms and workforce variables and client outcomes. And if you're a glass half empty person, you would say, well, that's incredibly disappointing. How can we advise governments about what they should do? Um, how can we improve client outcomes? If you're a glass half full person, you'll say, this means that governments don't have to competitively tender because it doesn't improve client outcomes. If governments listen to the experiences of service providers, 
they would understand that there are burdens associated with these this machinery of procurement um, that is not adding value, that is not improving things. So why continue doing it? Some of those adverse outcomes from the use of market forces can be compounded by the relationships they can build between commissioners and treatment providers. If you say a core part of your business as a GP is to deliver alcohol screening and brief interventions, that's one way of approaching them. The alternative is to say uh, that hasn't really happened. So what we'll do is we'll attach a financial incentive to that. For each thing that you do, you get paid X amount. And hopefully that increases the delivery of those things. Now, the first thing is that's always a bit dangerous because what we actually get is the recording of those things, whether or not they're happening. It also sets you up for a problem as a commissioner, because then when you do want something else to happen, you go back to them and say, oh, we, we said do it like this, but we'd actually like this. You've set that precedent then of, well, only if you pay me a fiver for each interaction I have rather than it being, oh, the evidence has changed, now doing it in this way is better. And we're all on the same page with just trying to deliver services better. As well as making some of those relationships complicated, there remain unanswered questions about whether the recommissioning process actually does or does not save money. You know, a future piece of research would would involve actually estimating the costs associated with this mechanism and comparing that to the costs associated with other purchasing or procurement or commissioning mechanisms. And and like medicine, if you've got two drugs that produce equal outcomes, arguably that's what our results show, the question is, which one is cheaper? And it's not clear, I, I don't think it's clear that competitive tendering is the cheapest option when you think of the whole all of the costs, including the cost to the commissioner of engaging in this exercise. The the best versions of competitive tendering don't compete on price. They compete on quality. And in um, one of our jurisdictions in Australia, there is a fixed price competitive tendering process. And I actually think that that approach where you're competing on quality, you're not competing on price, might actually be a much better approach if you accept that competitive tendering is the best way to purchase um, healthcare. I asked Will whether there was any scope for fixed price tendering in England. It may or may not be um, exactly fixed price tendering, but certainly that approach exists. So if you think of how substance misuse treatment services are funded, that's largely through the public health grant, which is determined by you know, formula and negotiations nationally. So a local authority will simply be given what their grant is. And then there'll be a kind of local discussion of how much of that goes to each of the different things that they're going to need to buy. But once you've had those discussions, you've had that conversation about how much are we willing to commit to sexual health or to substance misuse treatment. If you've decided there's £2 million available for this service per year, that's that's the price. You've already set it. The competition is now about how much can we get? How good will it be? That There's not a huge amount of value in someone saying, well, I can do this for 1.9 million, because then you're left with the conversation of, well, what then happens to the supposed savings out of that? 
Providing drug treatment can be a complex process, as can commissioning those services. And as with many interventions, the quality of that provision, rather than its existence or non-existence, can be a crucial element. Procurement processes are not universally bad. They can sometimes be a really useful tool. But if you're doing them almost on autopilot or you haven't had the time to reflect on what are we really trying to achieve and how are we going to do it, that's when it becomes largely a waste of everybody's time, effectively. But it's often a waste of time because people haven't had the time to do it properly. It's this kind of vicious cycle. Discussions about recommissioning will continue, particularly as we wait for the latest drug strategy and associated funding. There remain many challenges for treatment provision, of which commissioning is just one, albeit a central one. As indicated by Professor Black, there are many ways to improve treatment delivery, all of which need to be addressed if substantial progress is to be made. Each of these areas should be evidence-based, from treatments to commissioning processes and to the use of market forces. I found both of those interviews interesting and I think I just it's worth mo- noting at this point that the that these are extracts from two much longer interviews the Alison the one with the professor Alison Ritter is available on addiction audio and the one with uh, Dr Will Haydock available um on the SSA podcast feed um but recommissioning is such a such an important issue and is one that's going to be quite central to any reforms that come uh, did you have any any thoughts on that Oliver from from your standpoint in collective voice um, absolutely. I, I thought it was a really interesting listen, Rob. And um, the question that's sort of playing in the back of my mind is what decisions about commissioning and about structural process and policy development, um, how will they best serve the needs of the people with drug and drug and alcohol problems which the system exists to serve and what am i what i mean by that is it's very easy to get lost in all the kind of the mechanics of it and the kind of organizational focus um to the extent that that almost becomes more important than those needs so with commissioning um it does feel like we've had a pendulum swing through the past couple of decades we had the the days of the national treatment agency with a a strong central hand of the state sort of resting on the shoulder of of drug treatment services and some people like that some people didn't we then had the the local government public health era which unfortunately happened at the same time as um, terrific disinvestment from the center and local government so a sense of being cut off at the knees really um, and I think that you know the pendulum swing is, is coming back into the middle with the black review and some of, of that stuff a lot of it is about contract length and we've got to ask ourselves the question who benefits from these really short um, contract lengths well no one basically it can't be good for people using the services the commissioners don't like it because it's so it's such a huge huge piece of work to do a recommissioning cycle the providers don't like it because it's disruptive to them so one of the one of the green shoots which is emerging i think is um a focus on more sustainable more partnership based approaches longer contract lengths um we've seen some really good alliance models of commissioning in in plymouth um and essex they're just two that 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 spring to mind but there's but there's others there's a whole movement around human learning systems within public service commissioning which is saying the new public management style top-down transactional target driven way of doing things has some 
benefits, but it, it, it just it doesn't grasp the full complexity of any human being, probably, but particularly people with, with quite challenging life circumstances who need a whole array of interlaced services to deliver really person-centered care and support to them. Um, so that there's actually some quite exciting stuff out there happening, I think, and, and the Black Review changes and the changes brought about through integrated care systems and a reduction in um, competitive tendering, I think can facilitate some of these green shoots to, to grow further. Absolutely. I think uh, I think for me, key is the um, is the removal of that that constant and systematic disruption uh, to service provision. Um, you know, and I think it, it is important to, to make changes. It is important to reflect on what you need and to adapt services. Um, but there needs to be a way of doing that that doesn't um, doesn't disrupt things and doesn't. Uh, I think using the words of uh, of uh, of the black report doesn't demoralize the workforce um yeah so i strongly encourage anyone interested to to listen to those uh, those two full interviews and uh, to read professor ritter's paper on on the subject um now we're going to cut to a uh, an extract from the phd podcast this is from um phd addicted to research uh, which is a podcast for phd students run by phd students um and uh, in this episode, Chloe talks about some of the research and study that's been happening during COVID-19. Up first is Dr. Jenny Scott, who is a senior lecturer in the Department of Pharmacy and Pharmacology at the University of Bath. Jenny's research explored how the pandemic affected people in rural areas who take opiate substitutes. And this research was a collaboration with the University of Bristol and also Turning Point Services. We found that by and large, people have really welcomed the changes in the pandemic, particularly the changes to the prescribed medication. Um, we found that drug and alcohol services, people's lives don't revolve around them and the hoops, as they call it, and the challenges of having to, to make appointments, to attend appointments, to attend um, you know, groups um, and, and to engage sometimes quite frequently have, have been difficult, particularly in rural areas, and people welcomed the space that, that they'd been given. They welcomed having contact uh, online and on the phone. They talked of how um, in rural locations that was much easier to attend than perhaps having to rely on public transport. We found um, people were generally quite isolated in the pandemic. There, uh, people, particularly those with coexisting mental health problems, often talked of, of uh, a worsening of depression. Um, although, interestingly, people with anxiety often talked of improved symptoms because they didn't have to leave the house, they didn't have to interact with others, they didn't have to physically attend appointments. Our final segment is with Rebecca Dwyer, also a PhD researcher based in the SUAB Research Group at Manchester Metropolitan University. Rebecca's research looks at the role of stress and alcohol in cognitive performance and brain activity in undergraduate students. Yeah, so uh, COVID, uh, as I imagine, has had such a huge impact on research in general. Um, and this kind of um, hit during right smack bang in the middle of my PhD. Uh, so I had to make quite a few changes. So originally I was running some experiments in a lab at university, 
and I got to use all this exciting and interesting equipment to measure brain activity and physiological responses. So all this really, you know, snazzy gear that I'd got trained up on, trained to use, trained to analyse. Unfortunately, COVID hit and I couldn't do the face-to-face -face testing anymore. And so it took me quite a few months to put together a study that would work in the same similar kind of way, but in an online format. So I still had to get these tasks that I was using in the lab, try and translate them to an online format so that I could keep them kind of consistent between the lab and the online version. Unfortunately, I did end up losing those uh those measures of the brain activity and the physiological data in the online study because it's quite difficult to measure that remotely um, but it was such a huge learning curve and there was points where I thought I, I don't know whether this is going to be possible I might have to change this whole kind of methodology completely but thankfully I managed to get it to work keep the methodology as kind of consistent as possible between the two studies so yeah that was a huge win I was really really happy that I finally managed to get that up and running. Thank you, Chloe. Uh, now, uh, Carol, this, this touches in uh, on some of the areas that you're particularly interested in. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, it was particularly concerning listening to, to Rebecca's um, experience of how COVID has impacted upon her research that she's been conducting during her PhD, although she, uh, there's always a silver line and she speaks about how she was able to overcome that and uh, she was able to conduct the rest of her of her project. But I think that it goes across the board. I mean, I know a lot of people here have had their research negatively impacted because of COVID, which of course is uh, to be expected. But I think in terms of thinking about the conception of research projects and, and research projects that we are potentially still at the stage we're trying to get ethical approval to, to conduct, ethical uh, boards are prioritizing COVID projects or maybe not so much now but they were at the time so I know it was uh, quite a long process of trying to secure ethical approval for trying to get any research uh, to, to take off but Oliver could probably talk more about the OST provision so I'll, I'll leave that up to the expert. Thanks Carol well I mean just an observation which springs to mind around changes to OST provision during COVID-19 um, pandemic, I mean, it's easy to forget how urgent and scary those first few days of the pandemic were. I remember being in, in PHE meetings and we had a, a date in the diary just, you know, two two days hence to discuss these emergency um, changes and we, you know, it was cancelled. We had to bring it forward a day just because that sense that 24 hours really matters. You know, we've got to do this now. And, um, of course, there were very good reasons why changes were made to um, practice around supervised consumption and people were, um, in, in, in some cases, in many cases, given larger take-home doses. That was the right decision at the time to keep people safe. And I think there's a proportion of people for whom that decision has probably been a, a, a positive because it's given them a greater sense of agency and autonomy over their own uh, regime of medicine. But I think it's also important to say there's a, there's a proportion of people for whom, though that was an appropriate measure to keep them safe, in the long term it is not appropriate for that to continue for them because some of the people we serve do have really challenging and, and chaotic life circumstances and there are sound clinical indicators for people having to come in every day to pick up this medicine. So there was different takes on this issue at the time. Some people saw it as a, a kind of an act of liberation and, and the sort of the hand of the state being taken away from people. But I think we've just got to be a, a little bit cautious because 
Um, although that might be true for some people, that there's other people that we, we we've got to err on the side of caution very much with. I, I, yeah, I there's so much from uh, our experiences our there's so much from the experiences of uh, of addiction treatment and of drug use uh, over the past two years that we will no doubt be unpicking for probably decades to come. Um, okay, well, thank you, uh, thank you at home for listening or at work if that's where you are listening. Um, thank you, Dr. Caroline Getty from Addiction News. Thank you, Oliver Standing from Collective Voice, uh, for your time on the podcast today. We'll be back in a month's time where our uh, guest host will be Dr. Sharon Cox. We look forward to seeing you then. Bye. Bye. Thanks very much, Rob. Thanks, Rob.